This is David Nage with my co-host Amanda Frankel. This is Baselayer, where institutional investors learn about crypto. This is David. Welcome back to Baselayer. On today's episode, we have Monica from Cadena. Monica has an amazing amount of experience in areas that are outside of crypto and inside of crypto. We talk about how Monica was training to be an opera singer and how apparently you have to be around 35 to 38 when your voice actually becomes worthy of being an opera singer. Did not know that. Then she went into mathematics. She did some time in investment banking, uh, worked at some uh, retail startups, one that's actually quite popular. We talked about big data. We talked about what they're building at Cadena, which is quite interesting. The team came from JP Morgan. And they have something called PACT, which is effectively trying to make smart contracts more human and readable, which I think is really interesting. So we talked a lot about Ethereum. We talked about what's happening with EVM. I love the fact that she kind of called the first iteration the first draft and how you know we're getting to a point where hopefully with human readable uh, smart contracts and some of the other iterations, more people will be able to start using them and building off of it. It was a great conversation. You're really going to enjoy it. Remember, nothing on Baselayer is investment advice. On the flip side, you'll hear from our sponsor, and then you'll hear the conversation with Monica. Enjoy. Today's family offices and hedge funds face a number of challenges when it comes to trading and managing their crypto portfolios. On the trading front, siloed liquidity, opaque execution, and questionable compliance deter entry. On the management front, spreadsheet and manual workflows are still the de facto solution. These infrastructure and usability problems, which have been long solved in traditional finance, still need to be addressed in crypto. Lumina has set out to solve this problem. To find out more about Lumina, please go to lumina.app. This is David, and this is your new episode of Base Layer. We have Monica Quantins with us, uh, who is at Kadena. Um, this is a project that has been talked about a lot within the uh, crypto ecosystem. The team has a lot of experience from traditional finance and have moved over to uh, work on Candena full-time. They have something called um, the PACT, um, which is part of smart contracts. And there's a lot of nuances and a lot of things that Monica is going to be able to help us about. But Monica has a really extensive background from uh, being an investment banking associate at Cushman and Wakefield to working at Quinnibee to working at the... As, uh, Securities and Exchange Commission, otherwise known as the SEC, and rent the one way, and then all the way to Kadena. So, would love to hear kind of your journey. Um, again, on base layer, we don't really talk about the kind of proverbial air quote when Bitcoin, but effectively why you decided or what you saw within the technology that was so inspiring that really led you to alter your career to focus on it 100% of the time. So with that, Monica, it's all yours. Tell us a little bit about yourself and about uh, kind of what Kadena is, and then we'll go into lots of questions that we, uh, we've we been talking about. Thanks, David. Uh, so to start, I'm supposed to tell you that it's Kadena, not Kadena. Yeah. That's the yeah. person that I'm supposed to tell people. We, we're trying to standardize our pronunciations because even when we started, we were like, Kadena, Kadena. Let's call the whole thing off. But now we, we've decided <laughs> that we pick the pronunciation of Kadena. I won't call it tomato. <laughs> yeah. So, so there you go. You, I've, you, I've, you, already, I've, already, I've already messed up the name of the, of the project and the company. That's great. So with that, we'll let you alter and fix that and then tell us all about what you're doing. Sure. Um, so you've effectively asked me the what I like to call the crypto origin story. I like to ask people, um, you know, what what was your crypto origin story? And David? Yeah, so it, it's the origin story, but also not necessarily the time, but it's more about the the why. Because everyone, I agree right. with you, everyone talks about the time, you know, like 2011, 2012, 2013. I kind of want to hear more about the why. 
because mm-hmm. a lot of people, especially from traditional finance over the last few years, have left very promising careers, you know, where they've probably could be partner at investment banks and other, you know, other places. And they've left and they've said, eh, I'm going to go and create some stuff in crypto. And so it's more about the, the kind of the why instead of the when. But so I'm curious to hear it all. Sure. So I've had a very convoluted career and it's been more driven by me just keeping my eyes open and saying yes to opportunities when they come up. I was originally, I was supposed to be an opera singer. That was supposed to be my career. And I went to school for vocal performance and then I dropped out and became a mathematician because I realized that waiting until I was like 38 for my voice to be ready to be an opera singer was just not going to cut it for me. So, uh, uh, yeah, there's this whole thing where like your physiology doesn't really mature until your thirties. And so all of the like famous opera singers, unless they're singing particular roles are all in their thirties or, or or older. I did not know that. Yeah. So I, and at the time I was like, oh, well now I have no idea what I'm going to do. I'm just going to do what you do when you're at school in New York city and you've studied some sort of math and you get sucked into investment banking land that's that's just what they do they recruit like crazy from all the schools so i went and you you know it's fascinating having getting your fingers into the world of capital markets like who's trading what and i had a series 7 license and a series 63 license and a series 79 these are all the like how do securities work and how can I sell people securities and what does that mean? And what does it mean to securitize a blah, blah, blah. Newsflash is actually really boring. It's super boring. (laughs) And there's a lot of inefficiency in the system. And there's a lot of, I'm not going to use the word graft, but I'm going to think the word graft and say the word inefficiencies again, because there's a lot of like, you know, you pay this guy a fee in order to make a transaction with this guy who's going to take a fee to make a transaction with this guy. And by the time you make it to the end, like you've paid 30% of whatever you're working on in fees. So, and, and the, the business is very traditional. So I just, I couldn't do it anymore. I quit my job. I didn't have a plan. I didn't know what I was going to do. I lived out of a backpack for a while and crashed at French couches and taught myself how to program, which is way more fun. Programming is awesome, especially as I worked my way through working on different kinds of projects. I found that systems integration, how things connect to each other and the flow of information, how do we collect data? How do we deal with data? How do we manage it is the part that to me is the most interesting. I think maybe it's because I have a degree in statistics and that to me, the aggregation of large amounts of data and what it says about us as people about humans and how we make choices on a large scale, that starts to become really interesting. And that was uh, when I worked at Rent the Runway, I was working on their data engineering team. And one of the projects that I worked on was the recommendation system where we took in all of the information for every, uh, for Rent the Runway, for those who don't know, it's you can rent clothing. Women rent clothing and the service buys high-end clothing and you can rent it for a day or a week and then send it back. And so Rent the Runway has one of the largest dry cleaning facilities in the world. We say that it's the largest in North America, but you know, who knows whether that's, that's hard to, hard to verify, but it's definitely a contender. And so sending sending dresses around the whole country and then tracking them and knowing who wants what and having trying to generate profiles around who these people are in terms of their general preferences and characteristics and then trying to figure out how to match them to each other. Also that, yeah, very, very interesting work. And they have a really amazing customer base and they're actually, it was easy to go to work every day because it's really People are passionate about Rent the Runway. People that use Rent the Runway are obsessed and it's changed their life. And you read customer reviews and you're like, I've never felt so beautiful at my daughter's wedding. And all. It, it's really actually inspiring. And going from working somewhere where I really did not care whether I was selling oil rigs off the coast of Brazil or tomato processing plants in Mexico to 
people who genuinely feel like they've had their lives made better by something that was, I'm, I'm never going back. I'm never going to work somewhere where I don't care. Quick question. So my knowledge of the space, as I mentioned before, you know, as looking at some of the competitors to rent their own way, the hidden part of this space is structured data. The way that we search for things today, there are petabytes and petabytes, and uh, I'm sure there's nomenclature that describes the amount of data that we actually produce today as humans, but the way that you actually search for things. So if you use Google search or if you use Yahoo, if you use Renter One Way, you might describe a dress as a blue dress with et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but someone might be searching for something. They might be searching for a blue dress, but it might be slightly different. And so matching those two A and B in terms of structuring that data and helping that search is fairly complex, if I'm not mistaken. So the 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 underbelly of this of this is the structured data component of these types of services, if I'm not if I'm not if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that's certainly a part of it. But we found, and this is going to turn into a podcast about Red the Runway, which is fine. But uh, we found that actually trying to match things like this collar is shaped like a circle and this thing has puff sleeves, like was not particularly interesting or did it provide value. It was more important to match people to their preference types. So in the way that, at least when I was there, and that was a couple of years ago now, when that system works by, if I've rented these five dresses and I liked them, then if somebody else also rented some subset of those dresses and liked them, they will show me things that that person likes and show that person things that I likes. And that is a much easier way to attempt to classify products than it is to be like, well, you know, if you have an A-line thing that has a flared skirt, with, it's too complicated. It's too many variables. It's much easier to leapfrog the whole trying to figure out why people like what they like and just jump straight to, well, if you like this and she likes this, then you're both going to like this other thing. That's what this whole world of like uh, neural network learning is about it's trying to leapfrog the individual steps between like well you know here this thing has an angle and this thing is blue and going straight to i don't care what the processes are in the middle just give me the result which is sort of amazing and scary that computers are doing things now that we don't really know what they're doing in their training model but somehow we still manage to get results out the back end do you think that's a causality of the way that humans have become with smart devices it's on-demand video it's netflix it's you know amazon prime i want my thing today i don't want to have to go to a store i want to watch this movie now i don't want to have to go to a movie theater or to you know in the old days blockbuster is it that on-demand kind of causality that humans have today that are that are driving demand for these types of platforms uh, I mean, convenience is certainly a part of it, and but I think the true value of Rent the Runway, at least when I was working there, the thing that spoke to me most was the idea that you don't have to buy cheap, shitty, fast fashion that was made by child labor in Cambodia. You can instead spend the same amount, you know, $80 on something that you could buy at, you know, Zara or H&M or something. And have wear it two times and have it fall apart. Or you could rent something for $80 that's this beautiful, high-quality, handcrafted, sustainably by somebody in Italy who knows their craft, like $500, $600 dress, and wear it once and still get the same enjoyment out of it. But instead, it's sustainable. It's not, we've made this thing and now we're throwing it away. It's this idea that, you know, if we all pool our knowledge and our understanding and our desires and our resources, then we can have a better outcome for everybody than if everybody tries to individually do their own thing and instead we leave the power in the hands of the czars of the world. And so moving into the world of crypto, I find it interesting because one of the aspects of your project is this notion of pact or smart contracts and I want you to talk more about that. But 
at the very core of a smart contract, or you know, as as Nick Zabo had discussed, the difference between wet and dry contracts. Um, you know, wet is kind of the human kind of issue where we alter things, we we kind of fix things, we we change things. You know, kind of on demand. Whereas, kind of the dry is just computer code. It's A equals B, one plus one equals two. And so with your experience, you know, in, in data and with, you know, being an engineer, um, you know, is it, did you see this, is it something that kind of drew your, you know, kind of interest in this notion of smart contracts or, you know, computer code that would effectuate, you know, a, a contract between a buyer and a seller? Is that something that happened? Or what was the kind of the catalyst that led you to really focus or kind of move into this world of crypto? So I was working at Rent the Runway, but I had been there for a few years and I was ready to do something new. And Will called me. I'm talking about Will Martino here. He and Stu founded Kadena. And he called me and said, hey, I know it's been a while since we last talked. I've left JP Morgan and I've been working on a blockchain. And I was like, I don't know what that means, but okay. And he said, so we've been making a private blockchain and we've realized that we can take this thing that we've made for a private blockchain and we can turn it into a public blockchain and we can give it to the world. And it's going to be all about decentralized access to information and data. And it's going to be a giant worldwide data system. Do you want to come? I was like, I don't know what any of those things mean, but a global system for managing information sounds super cool. So I'm in. And it turns out that actually knowledge of distributed database architecture translates really well to a blockchain because at the end of the day, all we're doing is figuring out how to replicate information in a novel way. And it's not, there's this whole world of, you know, BFT systems that are used in Paxos and Raft and all of these database systems for which I've used for years and variations on these things are from what arrive proof of stake. And we are a proof of work project and proof of work is really fascinating to me because it's allowed you to completely circumvent this need to be able to trust people. You don't have to vote. You don't have to know who's doing what. So we don't, we don't have to turn this into a proof of work versus proof of stake discussion today, but uh, we're excited about being able to do proof of work in a way that we think is scalable. And so when Will called me and said, we're going to make this, this system, I immediately had to ramp up from knowing literally nothing about blockchain to suddenly a month and a half later, we put out our paper at Stanford. So that it's been a wild ride ever since. It's been like a year and a half now. And I think the thing that excites me the most is that because of the way that our stack works, we have a private blockchain and we have a public blockchain and they're actually connected through the smart contract layer. So PACT allows you to have both a private blockchain and a public blockchain. And you can have what we talk, call hybrid applications where you can have some of your information or all of your information on a private blockchain and then have it marked on the public blockchain. Like we're working with a company now that's doing um, vaccination tracking. And so they want to prove that they're doing the vaccines where they when they say they're doing the vaccines. So they keep the patient data on the private blockchain and then they put out a marker onto the public blockchain, at least this is the plan because the public blockchain is only in testnet right now. Right. And so a few yeah. questions, a few questions mm -hmm. here, because there's a lot, a lot there. Um, you were, you said you had like about a month and a half or so before you released your white, the white paper um, at Stanford with Stanford. Um, and so you needed to learn as much as humanly possible about blockchain. How did you do it? Where did you go? Uh, well, I was fortunate in that Will and Stu had been thinking critically about blockchain at the JP Morgan Blockchain Research Group for the last like two to three years. So they, we did a lot of time in a tiny room <laughs> in a co-working space in Brooklyn where they drew stuff on the wall and then we'd argue about things. They taught me how you know, Bitcoin works and how Bitcoin scripts work and what is an opcode and how to, it's a direct person to person transfer from people that have been synthesizing it for years. Uh, 
And then once I had a foundation there, I went out and I read all of the white papers that I could get my hands on, the ghost paper in, in talking about, you know, how do you add uncle blocks in order to increase the security of your network and uh, talking about smart contracts and what is solidity and how does the EVM work? There's and a lot so, to go through. There's a lot to read. <laughs> sure. Um, and so one of the things with this podcast is that we, we kind of focus on the institutional investor that may not be up to speed on the nuances and the technicalities that you now are as a, as you know, someone who's obviously in the crux and building, uh, within the space. And so, you know, the notion of public versus private blockchain time and time again, I've had instances with high net worth individuals, with family offices, with institutional investors that say, I like blockchain, but I don't like Bitcoin. Um, and that's obviously a frustration point for many of those in the ecosystem. I've talked about it, I've written about it, that there's still to this day, and I say to this day, I think we need to have a little patience, but there is mm -hmm. still this kind of difficulty in understanding the differences between a private and a public blockchain. And because you guys are doing a hybrid one, um, because you have experience at the code level, I'm curious if you can try to expand on that and, you know, really try to help people understand the differences there. Sure. Uh, so we can talk about this in two ways, and it might be better to talk a little bit about each. One of them is how they differ on a technical level, but the other is how they differ in what you might want to use them for. So for I, the I think first those are both one, applicable, yeah. <laughs> The first one, they're different on a technical level because a private blockchain, it's most similar to as if you were going to spin up a database, your own database for your company only. And only the people that you give the key to the database to can go in and poke around and do things to your data. They can add it, they can remove it, whatever system you're in. This is most similar to a private blockchain because there are, you can have nodes in your blockchain and whoever is given access can spin up their own node, which will replicate the information that's stored in this blockchain. And this is, this is a model that people understand, right? This is like Oracle. This is like, you have a, you have a data thing and you have to give somebody access to your data thing. It's the only difference here is that blockchain when you're using it in a private context, it's different from a database because it's always append only. You can only ever add data. You can never go back and change anything. So this is similar to a type two data system is what we would call it in database land. And every time you spin up a new node, you get a perfect replica of the ledger. And then it, it shares data in the way that you would expect a conventional distributed database. You have nodes that vote and a blockchain has a system where, depending on which type of private blockchain you're using, it usually it does some sort of round robin voting where people vote and then that system that round then gets promoted to another round of voting. It doesn't really matter. This is this is a twist on your traditional database system. Is a private blockchain. A public blockchain is a totally new beast, like nothing that we've ever seen before. It is. It takes this idea that you want to be able to replicate a ledger, but anyone anywhere in the world at any time can go in and can poke around in the data, can add new transactions to the ledger. And what is so amazing about Bitcoin is that the only way that you need to verify that you should be allowed to be the next block leader, the next person allowed to add new things to the system, is you need to do enough work to prove that you've worked hard enough to make the next block, that you're probably not just some adversary coming in trying to smash everything and flip it over. So you do enough work, then anywhere, anywhere in the world, some grandma in Ukraine with a GPU in her closet could theoretically be the next Bitcoin block leader. And that's why it's so amazing and powerful and actually completely different from a, pri from a private blockchain in every way. Now, from your experience, again, drawing back from, you know, working in startups, you know, working at a more traditional finance company and now 
at the company, I, I saw that you guys are talking to, you know, Fortune 100 companies. What is their hot take? And again, I'm not asking you to speak for the entire universe here, but there seems to be an interest in using private blockchains because certain companies obviously have what they would define as trade secrets. If you're doing supply and logistics, if you're a FedEx or if you're a manufacturer and you're shipping chairs from Italy to the United States, you might not want your competitor to know your your travel routes or the way that merchandise is moving and how you're getting you know better profit margins, those types of things. Um, mm-hmm. How are Fortune 100 companies and how do you think companies are going to move into this space? Are they going to start with more private blockchains first, like we're starting to see now? and then potentially move over, or are they going to use a hybrid approach like you guys? So in general, I can separate our clients into two pools. We have people that are looking for a better database, and we have people that are actually interested in innovating with some sort of hybrid blockchain model. And we, we love all of our clients equally, even the ones that are looking for a better database. And we can provide that with a private blockchain. But these are like your supply chains that we're talking about. Like FedEx is never going to use a public blockchain. That is just not going to work. It's not going to be what they need it for. What they want is a better database. They want something that you know that everybody has to attest with a signature where something is. that So you know who did what and when. That you can only ever add data. You can never go back and change anything. These are totally reasonable uses for a private blockchain. But then you start to, when you start talking about how can we use public blockchain and private blockchain together, these start to become really interesting. And these are the use cases that I spend most of my time working on and trying to convince people to to jump in and get their hands dirty with. It's this idea that you want to have some sort of broadcast or liquidity or option to go out and interact with the world of general consumers, but you also want data privacy. And so to give you an example, we're working with a company that right now, there's some, they're a company that in the nineties made the first ever, one of the first ever ETFs. They've been around for a long time and they're interested in doing some sort of tradable token that represents real securities on the blockchain with the idea that you would cross some sort of AML KYC compliance boundary and then you'd end up in a walled garden where everybody in there can trade their securitized assets freely amongst each other with no settlement fees, no exchange. You don't have to worry about uh, some sign of time to settlement. You don't have to only trade during the hours in which the market is active. If something happens and you receive information, you could trade and trade instantaneously. And this idea that you want to have some sequestration of private data, but you also want to have access to this market that public blockchain has made. That's the first I've heard of that. I've The notion of kind of security token offerings, STOs, and the notion of tokenizing the world and having, you know, otherwise non-digital assets become digitally native is, is something that has been discussed for a while now. But that is an interesting kind of, I see that's an interesting bridge that, you know, this particular company is looking at doing. And so getting back to your work and getting packed back to Pact and the the smart contracts. If you could, again, I know this is a little bit 101, but I think it's important so people understand what is a smart contract. And then secondly, you talk about it to be the first truly human readable smart contract. What does that mean to a person that might not understand that? Yeah. Pact is amazing. And it's when we talk about all of the awesome things that we're doing, and there are a lot. I think that Pact is going to be the one that, like, they might get drawn in by how cool Chainweb is, our public blockchain, but at the end, it's going to be Pact that makes people stay because 
So let me go back and talk about what a smart contract is first before I tell you how cool PACT is. You don't have any context. For a, a smart contract is this idea that you can not only in this ledger, your distributed ledger where it gets replicated all over the world, you don't just put a transaction that says Monica's paying David a Bitcoin, Monica's paying David half an ETH. You, you can also into your transaction put in a function, put in some code. And when the transaction goes into the mempool and then gets picked up by and added into a block, when nodes around the world that are running Ethereum validate the block, they execute your code. So that means that you can make an application like a regular app, like that runs on your phone. And instead of having it run on Amazon's EC2s, which are in Virginia, you can have it run on the blockchain. Because somewhere in the world, in Ukraine, the grandmother with a GPU in her closet is validating Ethereum blocks. And when she executes your code, it will run your app. I love Babushka. I love Babushka. <laughs> Babushka in, in Ukraine. Uh, Kaktala. Kak, you know, I, I love you. Let's let's connect. Let's get you on the podcast. <laughs> She's like loosely modeled after my friend Felix, who lives in Berlin and has GPUs in his closet, but also my friend Peter's grandmother in Ukraine. It's she's like an amalgamation of real people that I know, this imaginary Ukrainian grandmother. I love they, it. Uh, yeah. So smart contracts have the potential to be really awesome because you can put all kinds of things in this code. Like, for example, Monica wants to pay David half an ETH, but only after a certain date if certain conditions are met. And you can put that in the contract and then when it will just figure the rest out itself, it will deal with all of that. And so you, you're starting to give logic into your contracts. Unfortunately, the way that smart contracts have been developed so far, they're very difficult. And some of these problems you can pin on the EVM. And some of these problems you can pin on solidity. But in general, the development environment for people that want to write smart contracts right now is very unsafe. The things that you would expect in a normal virtual machine, like the Java virtual machine, which, by the way, isn't that great in the first place, but compared to the EVM, it's like magic because the EVM doesn't have things like it doesn't have any name abstraction. Like you can't give a contract a name, which seems like, oh, you know, maybe you don't really need that anyway. The way that contracts in Ethereum are referenced is with their address, which is made with your key. That's why contracts in the EVM can't be upgraded because you make it and that's its name and there's no way to ever change it. It's not some sort of philosophical like code is law thing. They made that up post hoc in order to deal with the fact that they couldn't figure out how to change their own code. That's that's my speculation. I don't know whether that's true, but that's what I think. So, so Pact has a bunch of these features that you would expect to have in a normal functional development environment. Like you can give your smart contract a name. And if you don't like the way that your smart contract is now, you can make a new version of it and upgrade it and then change the name to be the new thing and not the old thing. Like, obviously, this is what you would want if you were going to write code because code changes. People change. Even the agreement, the, the terms of a contract can change. You can't change your code to live with people's flexible lives. Then it's never going to be useful. So why do you think this was not, again, I'm not asking you to speak for the entire Ethereum Foundation or the entire Ethereum community, but this seems like a fairly, non it seems like a nonsensical thing. I know EOS and a few other different projects were trying to make it more human, whereas, you know, I always... It may not be the right analogy, um, but there was this notion back in the 90s moving from IP addresses to DNS where it made it more human, where you could type in Amazon.com instead of a chain link of, of numbers on a web browser. And so, you know, there's this idea that at some point in time, you know, things like, 
you know, making it more human, make it, you know, something, you know, whereas someone who might not necessarily be a Solidity developer could actually use this product and that would make it more, you know, adoptable. Why do you think, can you even speculate why that might have been created that way first and foremost? You know, it seems to me that if you were trying to get more people to use it, you would do it the way that you guys are doing it. All respect to the people that originally made the EVM because they did a thing that we didn't even know was possible. Of course. Put <laughs> distributed code onto a blockchain. Didn't yeah. even know that that was a thing. But it's a first draft. That's that's what I consider the EVM to be. It's and I and there are a lot of things in the EVM that if you have ever taken a like a compiler class in a computer science program that you would not have made those mistakes. And the people that were making that environment at the time were doing something totally new and it probably would never have been made if it hadn't been made by people that didn't have a traditional computer science education. But there are things that there are, you know, 35, 40 years of programming experience and history out there that you do get formally taught. So we have the innovation of something that's amazing that could only have come out from left field. And now we're starting to refine it with the 40 plus years of wisdom that we've learned from traditional programming. And PACT builds on a lot of those design principles as a language. It's written in a language that is very well-defined, that has a very tight and safe type system. And then PACT abstracts away a lot of the things that we don't want the user to do. Like we don't want the user to be able to have an infinite loop in their smart contract because we think that that is a bad thing and not something that you would want to do on a blockchain. Because if you have an infinite loop in your smart contract and you're running it on Ethereum, you are just going to get stuck and burn up all of your gas. That would be considered a bug. So we don't let people do that in PACT. We don't let people write loops. We don't let people jump in PACT. And PACT is designed to only do the things that we think that people should do on a blockchain, which makes it very easy for us to put safeguards and rails up there. And the language looks like something, looks like English. You can see the word key set in there. You can see the word start. All of those things exist in PACT. So being that it's it's in the world of Ethereum, you know, kind of talking about two different things that have recently happened. A lot of people have talked about it. Constantinople uh, at the end of February launching and now moving, you know, with the beacon chain and potentially moving over the next two years to obviously moving full for force into proof of stake. Um, I'm curious kind of what you're what you might be thinking about that and kind of some of the bottlenecks that might be happening with that or some of the advantages of, of that happening. And then the other thing that's happening a lot within Ethereum is this notion of DeFi, of decentralized finance. Um curious from, you know, kind of taking a stab from your kind of statistical background and your probability background. If you've taken a look at any of that and, you know, kind of what you might be thinking about how that's being used today, if it's a, if, you know, it's a positive and that positive, or maybe something that might need to be thought about a little bit more. With the move to proof of stake, I, I mean, I think it's very bold for them to take a system that's essentially already functioning and trying to do a complete overhaul in mid flight. Not sure if it's a choice that I would have made, but I'm not as brave. From our perspective, Kadena is proof of work and has always been proof of work. Chainweb is a, a novel architecture that allows you to pump much more transaction volume through a proof of work system. And we don't really have time, I don't think, to go through Chainweb architecture because I can talk about it for like an hour just about Chainweb architecture. But there are lots of videos on the internet <laughs> of me talking about Chainweb. And so our, our whole hypothesis is that if you could make proof of work scalable, then we would never have needed to talk about proof of stake. But the only reason that people are talking about proof of stake is because they've given up on proof of work, but they did it too soon. Proof of work is amazing. It allows you to 
provably with math, prove that your blockchain is is safe. And proof of stake is just a regressive return to the voting systems of old. Remember when I said that a private blockchain is basically just a, a voting style database, but with a, a different kind of append only ledger? That's all proof of stake is. It's just another voting system. It's just allowed to be a public voting system. And I don't think it's that novel or that interesting. And it's, it hasn't been proven to be safe. So if the proof of stake move is bold. Let's we'll see how it goes. It's also people who like to say that, oh, you know, staking is so great because centralization of power. When you think about who's allowed to stake, you have to have a very high number of of ETH or of EOS and or you can only be a baker on Tezos if you have a and I don't think that there's a little bit of a the say one thing, but then look the other way in terms of who's really centralizing power in these staking systems. But I'm not sure that people are are necessarily being completely, they're being a little disingenuous when they say that staking is going to allow for less centralization of power. At least the miners in a proof of work system have an incentive to make sure that users are happy. Because if users aren't happy, then nobody is going to use the system and then the miners aren't going to make any money. Whereas in a staking system, if the stakers are also the ones that own all the coins, then they're just going to do whatever they want and screw everybody else. And so two more things, and then I want to find out a little bit more about you. You know, One of the things that we like to talk to some of our guests about are things like what you're reading and what you're listening to while you're working – but before we do that, um, I kind of wanted just to talk briefly and maybe get your opinions on two things, speed and scalability. And so, again, going back to you know more outside-the-box crypto people who might not necessarily be so deep into this, they continue to obviously talk about scalability, and they always use the Visa kind of comparison, which is not fair, or the MasterCard one, whichever one you want to pick in terms of you know transactions per second. And so, you know, thinking about what you guys are building there and thinking about, you know, kind of the hybrid model and thinking about speed and scalability, how do you think or do you think that there is a fair comparison? And do you think that we will get faster and, you know, more scaled in the next few years? Well, we're already working on that. Chainweb, at least, has the potential to allow you to have proof of work, but have a significant increase in number of transactions. We, when Chainweb is launching, essentially we say that we can do a transaction per second per chain in Chainweb. We like hand wave those metrics a little bit and they're yet to be fully finalized. But so that means if we have a hundred chains and we can do a hundred transactions a second, but the idea behind Chainweb is that it can grow and scale. And so that the if we have a configuration of Chainweb, eventually when people have enough demand for it, we can have a configuration that's as high as 10,000 chains. So then we can reasonably talk about having 10,000 transactions per second while still having the same security principles as the original network when we started, or perhaps even better than the original network due to the interconnectedness of all of these chains. Interesting. And so... The other thing that we like to do sometimes is thinking about the future. Um, you know, the last few, the last year and a half has been, dare we call it, crypto winter. Everyone's been kind of, you know, in the in the dumps. Everyone's been kind of wondering if this thing is actually going to take off. And then there are people who obviously are the the Bitcoin bulls who are obviously saying that yeah, this is going to take off. And over the last 12 hours, just to give uh, the guests a uh, kind of a dating of this, the last you know 12 hours, Bitcoin had a massive rally, and so a lot of people are starting to say crypto winter is over, and you know this is all the beginning of the new kind of era. Um, TBD on that. Obviously, happy to see that things are starting to uh, take off again. But in my opinion, price is not necessarily the thing that we need to be looking at. It's projects like yours that you guys are building that are actually starting to talk to companies, Fortune 100 companies, about leveraging the technology. I think that is you know, something that we need to be focusing on more as a community. But in terms of thinking about the future, if you wanted to say you know, 10 or 15 years down the road, how do you think 
all of this, you know, all the technology that you're currently working on and you're interacting with, you know, from, you know, kind of just a, if, if you could, you know, think about like the Star Trek kind of, you know, kind of picturesque type of movie scene, you know, are mm-hmm. we, are we thinking like, you know, is it Blade Runner where it's very dystopian or are we thinking that this is all going to have a very positive effect on society and what is that going to look like? That's a very difficult question. Uh, I am, I'm fundamentally an optimist. I think that if we can get ahead of it now and start to really implement these new technologies that we've created in beneficial ways, that we do have the potential to create a utopia out of it. That we can, you know, for for better or worse, we have things like, you know. We have things like Airbnb now where you can go to somebody else's home in a foreign country and have an amazing experience. And so we talk about what blockchain can do as the the blockchain sharing economy, where you can have different companies can share parts of their workflows and their internal efficiencies with other companies. And people can do more with less and we can work working with a project right now on tokenized housing so that even if you can't afford an entire house, you could potentially have a, a fractional share of a house and therefore participate in the housing market in a way that can democratize true value. And I'm I I don't want to sound too like pie in the sky here because these are all actual real things that we're doing. But I, I'm still hopeful that if we can to use this technology judiciously, it will make people's lives better and that we won't end up with Blade Runner. Although it would be cool to have, you know, like robot people. Yeah. And also Harrison Ford is not a bad guy to hang out with anyway. Um, I'm a fan of the original, not necessarily a new one, but that's my opinion. Um, I didn't even see the new one. It's the old one forever for me. Thank God. Um, Vangelis, I was, there was a point in time in the beginning of the year around, uh, right after Christmas break, I was listening to Vangelis and I was listening to the Blade Runner soundtrack and I was writing and I was reading. It was, it was kind of an interesting time. I kind of got into this mindset of looking into the future and I was, it was pretty cool. Um, but getting back, you know, kind of to wrap things up, you know, kind of, as I said, we like to know what inputs are in your kind of focal, you know, kind of focus, you know, what are you reading on a kind of, you know, is there anything in the last 30 days or last few months that has really stood out to you that is really amazing, something that other people might want to search and uh, kind of read themselves. And then in terms of music, you know, is there anything that you listen to if you're coding, if you're working on you know, your the project, is there anything that you're listening to that, you know, I, I personally think that music has a very profound effect on, on our, 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 our work and our psyche and ourselves. And so would love to hear, kind of hear kind of what you're, you might be reading and then also what you're listening to. I, despite my best efforts, have never really been able to read nonfiction or educational books. That's fine. I am a completely unabashed reader of science fiction and fantasy books. I love experimental science fiction that helps us question who we are as a species and as a society. So the book that I recommend to everybody who's not a science fiction person, but who is interested in emerging technology is, uh, is Diamond Age by Neil Stevenson. I go back oh, and read this yeah. book all the time. It is a great book, especially when we're talking about decentralized communities and what uh, it, it means to belong to a community in a decentralized world. The, um, I'm just for a little bit of color in the Diamond Age, the whole idea of the nation state being tied to a place is that has been abolished. And instead you belong to a nation that is defined by your values. And there's no such thing as morals anymore. The only thing that's important is that you declare your values and that you stick to them, whatever they are. Like a DAO. Mm-hmm, exactly. And so then it explores this idea of, what do these decentralized nation states look like? How do they interact with each other? What does it mean if you're somebody who's unaffiliated? So definitely recommend. It's one of my favorite books of all time. He also wrote Cryptonomicon, which was an amazing read too. So if anyone 
wants to search out Neil Stevenson. He's written some pretty amazing books in this space. Yeah, he's basically come up with some of the most seminal ideas for what we're currently working on, like uh, the whole idea of virtual real estate and uh, the word avatar, which is a Sanskrit word, as you're the idea of your being your online identity. Those came from the book Snow Crash, which is another Neil Stevenson great. I did not know that. Wow. Mm-hmm. And uh, as far as music goes, I, you know, I was supposed to be an opera singer. So basically, if I can sing along to it, I'll listen to it. So uh, folk music, pop music, Beyonce, anything that has a strong melodic influence. Um, I also am really, really into this bluegrass band called the Punch Brothers. This guy, Chris Steely, is an incredible mandolin player, and they have a wonderful twist on traditional bluegrass music, bringing it into the new era. So that's, uh, lo- that's usually what I'm listening to. I love it. Everyone comes on, they talk about listening to music without words, and you're listening to music with words. That's a complete, you know, you, you have completely shifted. There is a paradigm shift here. You have changed the... Uh, the the data inputs here that you know everyone's been listening to like EDM and ambient and classical music and you're talking about bluegrass music I love it it's great I mean um, that stuff's fine too but I really <laughs> want like some good jams there you go now the other thing that we do at the end is if there's uh, any place that you want folks to maybe check out uh, the project maybe learn a little bit more about you you know feel free to drop a uh, a quick one here, you know, either a web link or, you know, someplace that you guys, you know, write a lot about, you know, feel free to do that now so people can find you. We've got Kadena.io has all of our research on it, white papers and stuff like that. It also has Kadena.io forward slash chat is our discord channel where you can come in and you can talk to all of us. I'm often there, but you can also just tweet at me. I'm quaint M on Twitter. Amazing. This was Monica. We had a great conversation. Please check out the project. It's working, you know, with they're working with a lot of Fortune 100 companies and they're really trying to create something that is more human and more adoptable uh, within the ecosystem. Thank you so much for joining us. I want to get you back in a few months and see how the progress is going. And we'll we'll be chatting soon. Thanks, Monica. Thanks. Thanks, David. This, 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 this.